Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, today, we are lucky to have with us uh, in the studio, uh, Jason Parker. Jason is the co-founder of uh, Copperworks Distillery, a great uh, distillery in Seattle. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you so much, Joe and Mike. For sure. So tell us about Copperworks. Well, so Copperworks is a, a craft distillery. We're in Seattle on the Seattle waterfront, located right across the street from the Ferris wheel. So we're downtown. We uh, make, uh, from malted barley, we make vodka, gin, and now American single malt whiskey. And the wow. whiskey is actually uh, very close to coming out, probably the end of August, beginning of September. Super excited about that. Right. How long You've had the whiskey aging in barrels for some time. A minimum of two and a half years. Wow. That's right. So you, so you, you created or distilled the whiskey a few years back now. Yep, yep. And we, we actually distill whiskey every month. As a matter of fact, almost every week we're making whiskey, okay. putting it up into new charred American oak barrels and just letting it sit there, do its thing. So that's a big part of the thing, the barrel, right? Because the barrel is what gives it the... Yeah, so what gives it its color is what allows it to mature. It actually does three things. Just uh, um, I, I, I give this uh, talk a lot as I we do tours, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate it uh, from the hour-long tour that we normally do <laughs> to a couple of seconds. Um, barrels both remove flavor through the char, so they're removing some of the flavors that you wouldn't want I to be you. in the whiskey. They're adding the barrel flavors. The sugars are actually um, vanillin and caramel and oak lactones. And then finally, they're transforming compounds that are inside the whiskey through oxidation, what's called esterification, through a period of time into those delicious things that taste like you know dried fruit and tobacco and right. leather and coffee, those old flavors. Wow. That takes time. It takes yeah. time. Yeah. And it depends on the length of time it takes, depends on the size of the barrel. It does. Um, since those first two things, that uh, charcoal filtering to remove things and the barrel sweetness, the smaller the barrel, the more contact the whiskey has to that wood. So it quickly flavors and filters, okay. but it doesn't speed up that third process, that transformation. There's no way to speed that up other than with adjustments to temperature. You can't, can't fake the time. Okay, gotcha. So you guys distill vodka, gin, whiskey, and you distill do you, how like do you, every day? Are you distilling something, or is it like a two or three day a week? You know, it's probably uh, on average three days a week. Some days are five days, other days okay. are two. Um, we also, of course, have to brew. We actually brew the beer. We literally make a high quality craft beer with no hops, and that's what we start to distill everything from. Both Micah Nut and myself are uh, the two business owners. Are uh, brewers. I was have been a professional brewer for a long time. Micah has been a, uh, a really accomplished hobbyist brewery for a long time, and so we really enjoy making high quality beer, which we actually make at two different breweries: the Pike Place Brewery and the Elysium Brewery. Huh. We make what's called sweet wort over there, so it's it's where we've um, done the mash and the boil uh, of the of the malted barley, right. and then we truck that over to our distillery. Right. And then add brewer's yeast, not distiller's yeast, but being brewers, we add brewer's yeast. And mm. then we do a fermentation for a week, two weeks of cold conditioning. So it's three weeks in before we're actually pumping it over into the stills to wow. turn on the stills. So the still – oh, go ahead, Mike. Is that unusual to use to use like a beer base and like use a brewer's yeast? Is that, I'm, is that I'm not aware of anybody else who's doing that now, Mike, that, um, that level of um, full-on beer production, especially at a brewery. 
is uh, quite unusual. Some people are working with breweries to make a substrate that they start with. It's generally referred to as a wash, and they generally use a distiller's yeast. I'm, I'm actually not aware of anybody who's doing um, all the way to high-quality beer production. Does but that affect the, uh, the flavor of the, of the of finished distilled product? Yes, it does. So it actually not only allows that the brewer's yeast not only produces different flavors, again, another term called esters, uh, different flavors than distiller's yeast, it also doesn't extract as much alcohol. It doesn't produce as much alcohol, I should say. And the good news about that is that those sugars that are still um, left end up in the whiskey or the vodka or the gin. The bad news for most distillers is that it doesn't turn into alcohol and alcohol is money. So in one sense, you're losing about 20% of the potential alcohol you could make. But in our um, estimation, we're making a flavor that is unusual and difficult to make without that sacrifice right. of alcohol. So we do it. Wow. So so tell us about the whole thing. How did you get like what what set you off on this journey? I mean, what what made you want to start this thing? And, and <laughs> where were you, what were you doing before before Copperworks? Well, uh, like most entrepreneurs, um, I'm bad at math, so uh, I, <laughs> I d- didn't realize just how much uh, time, uh, money and life it would take to start a business. But the wonderful thing about it is I still don't feel like I work. Even though I do go to work right. uh, 60 to 80 hours a week, none of it has ever felt like work. It's always felt like just an amazing opportunity and privilege. So right. um, so how we got started in this uh, real short uh, answer again, and what's normally quite a long answer is, I was the first brewer at the Pike Place Brewery in 1989, and I decided to make my career in brewing and uh, did chemistry and microbiology at Evergroovy, uh, Evergreen down in Olympia, yeah. um, got fish brewing, um, started on their first recipes, trained their first brewers down there, came up here, worked at Red Hook when they were in Fremont, um, stole some of their ideas, and then went and opened up Pyramid Breweries as a first uh, brew staff there and became brewmaster and worked there for seven years. Um, so brewing was definitely something I loved. Micah and I had met almost 27 years ago, and we've been brewing homebrew together all of those years. Okay. And uh, have always considered maybe opening a brewery together. Um, I just wasn't ready to get back into brewing. But when craft distilling became legal in Washington State, Micah and I um, decided to jump in with both feet, you know, really jump in in a big way. Yeah. Well, t- now that's interesting. Uh for people who don't know, I mean, it, it used to not be legal to have a craft That's distillery. Right. It wasn't until 2008. Eight. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, just a few years ago. Yeah. What, what caused that change in the law? Um, a couple of entrepreneurs, Dryfly, Ken and uh, Don um, over at in Spokane at Dryfly Distilling, uh, had the uh, brain wave that it would make a lot of sense to bring craft distilling to Washington State. Right. They went down with a few other folks uh, who are now um, – well, some of them are now distillers in Washington State, uh, to Olympia, petitioned the legislator to actually create a law. And so in June 2008, it became law. And in July 2008, the first license was issued, and that was to dry fly. Ever since, we've been growing and growing. We now have 110 licensed distilleries in Washington wow. State. Wow. And that, by the way, is more than any other state 
King County has 27, which is more than any other county, and Seattle has 17, which is more than any other city in America. So wow. right now we have more distilleries than anywhere else. We're the distillery capital of the world. We are, yes. The, of the United States. <laughs> of the United States, yeah. <laughs> which actually may be the world. There's almost uh, 1,900 licensed distilleries in America now. Not all of them are operational. Only uh, about a thousand of them are operational. I love the story of how you found your stills. And like, didn't you, didn't you travel to Scotland uh, over the holiday period at some point, like late yep. December? And a bunch of the distillery guys were just sitting around. They don't work that time of year, but they entertained you and they regaled did. you with stories of their stills. And they did. <laughs> I want to Boy, hear about that. Well, that you know, one of the things that's uh, that Micah and I knew um, is brewing, but one of the things we didn't know is distilling. And so we knew that we wanted to order some of the best equipment that was available, and that was uh, for making American single malt whiskey. We needed uh, pot stills, just like Scottish. Whiskey is uh, also a pot-stilled malt whiskey. Right. We're changing a lot of the um, parameters, f- such as the beer as the, in- the main ingredient uh, to start. But we wanted to do traditional pot distillation. So we had the opportunity to travel over to Scotland and yeah. order our stills. Well, while over there, like you said, we went in, uh, it was January the 10th. Okay. On January the 9th, all the distilleries reopened. They usually take two to three weeks off for the whole holidays okay. and New Year's time. They do a little bit of plant maintenance, but mainly they just shut down, let huh. people go home and enjoy their, um, their, their holidays with their families. So when people came back, they were sort of un, uh, you know, un, unmotivated to jump right back into right. the fray, and there wasn't that much going on. So we spent literally entire days hanging out with master distillers. We, we got the opportunity to spend eight hours at Balvini and uh, uh, meeting the master distiller and the master blender over there, wow. uh, Glenfiddich. Um, uh, gosh, let's see, we were in only in the highlands in Speyside area, so most of the folks that we visited were all Spay so you, distillers. You didn't venture down the lowlands? We didn't, or we didn't go over to um, Isla, that's a different trip. We knew that the type of whiskey that we were going to start with was pretty much based on space-side flavors and right. space-side distillation techniques. Huh. So it made a lot of sense to start there. That's also where the uh, steel manufacturers Forsyth is, is located. They've been okay. making steel since uh, 1889. Wow. And so they know how to do this. And watching those guys hand hammer those stills was a real treat. Yeah, I imagine. Well, when you had those, there must have been quite a rush when you had them delivered and you unwrapped them. I oh, saw the photos. Man. The photos are yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. These are beautiful, huge, you know, giant copper. And you can walk in and take a tour. That's right. Yeah. And just walk into this, the, you know, the, the room. There's sample. You can take samples. Really nice, uh, really nice area there, right, right off the, right at the bottom of the harbor steps in Seattle. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're open every day. We open at noon every day um, on all our hours on our website, copperworksdistilling.com. But we also do tours on Fridays and Saturdays, so um, definitely love to have people come in. So can you now? So so there's all this sort of weird mishmash of rules and regulations governing your industry, and they're difficult, right? Because like for example, you can't <laughs> while you can have a sample room or you can have the tasting room. You can only you can't make mixed drinks, for example. Right. And in fact, you couldn't even have tasting rooms until. Is that a recent change, or did that come into place in 2008 too? Well, in 2008, 
uh, license called the Craft Distiller's License, which was defined by using 50% or more Washington-grown ingredient, okay. Okay. was allowed to have a tasting room. Um, three years ago, we got the ability for all Washington distilleries to have tasting rooms. It turns out that there are some very traditional ways of making products, such as gin, absinthe, amaros, liqueurs, which is to use a base grain-neutral spirit that has been distilled pretty much in an industrial plant to be completely flavorless, something difficult to do in a small batch distillery. Matter of fact, I'm going to go as far as to say nearly impossible to do economically. Uh, And without that grain-neutral spirit, it's very difficult to make the traditional types of, say, London dry gin flavors, which have no background notes of malt or corn or whatever the ingredient was. Um, Copperworks isn't worried about that. Personally, we don't make that type of London dry gin. But the folks who do are uh, are also very craft-focused. They're very um, uh, dedicated to small batches and high-quality ingredients. And so the important thing was that they should also be treated as artisans and have the same privileges to be able to have tasting rooms, to be able to talk about their products. They're Washington distillers. Right. We wanted to promote Washington distilleries. Sure. And so the uh, distillery guild, the Washington Distillery Guild, uh, petitioned again through a bill um, uh, in 2014 to get all distilleries' privileges to do tastings. Now you can do that. We can now dilute our samples with water, ice, or non-alcoholic mixers, such as uh, tonic. Okay. But we can't make cocktails. I gotcha. Interesting. Huh. For sale. So, so Mike, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but Jason's also the president of the Washington State Distillers Guild, mm-hmm. and uh, you've been that, in that spot for a couple, a couple years now. Yeah. I guess three, unfortunately. Three years. It wasn't it supposed <laughs> to be like a one-year rotating position or something? It is. Um, you know, I, I think I keep drawing the short straw. Actually, it's a wonderful organization. Yeah. And, yeah. and I feel really um, proud of the work we've done. We've, we, we do a lot of legislative work. We do a lot of um, access to markets. So that's opening up, you know, the ability to sample or, or sell, I should say, in farmer's markets. Um, raising the total volume that's allowed per year for a small distillery to make. Right. So we're doing a lot of different <clears throat> uh, things for distilleries. This year, our focus is on the Washington Distillery Trail, which will literally be a website that has all of the Washington distilleries that are members of the Distillers Guild uh, with uh, access to their tasting room hours, their products, okay. uh, what their story is, shots of where the, um, their products online. Yeah. And then we hold uh, a couple of events a year, Proof Washington being our flagship event that just happened in uh, the 9th of July. Okay. We had 46 distilleries over at Fremont wow. Studios, uh, 15 restaurants, and we had this wonderful event that lasted wow. four and a half hours where people wow. come in and yeah, taste. Yeah, I'm sorry. I missed that. That sounds really nice. Next year. Next year. <laughs> I, I really like the presentation you did. So I went last, uh, I forgot when it was, but I went to this conference called the Cascadia Grains Conference. Yeah. And it was, uh, when was that again? Was that last year? Was it that, was, yes. Uh, I guess December, October, yeah, or something I think so. like that. Put on by Washington State University. <clears throat> and the whole conference was about the Gra- the Cascadia area and kind of getting more people to use uh, grains growing in the Cascadia region. Right, right. Instead of like just bringing in grain from some far flung place. Right. Uh, and the grains from far flung places are a lot less expensive than we have in terms of local grains, as I understand. Uh, but you know the the, qual- the the quality of the locally grown grains is pr- probably higher. Yeah, it, it's it, a little bit of it <clears throat> is not only 
quality or price, but also supporting uh, the ecosystem, supporting the ecosystem, supporting the um, local environment. But let me let me and local businesses. But let me even say there are flavors that you simply can't get anywhere else. It's not okay. that it's uh, cheaper or even better for the environment. It's also it's not only those things, but it's also that it's a brand new base material right. that you get to make uh, whiskeys and beers from that hasn't been used forever. <clears throat> what's interesting is what's been driving the alcohol industry for 100, 120 years is uh, the liters of alcohol from a ton of material. That's the metric. How much alcohol do you get from a ton of material? And there's sort of this golden number. You want 440 liters of alcohol per ton of grain. Huh. And if you get less than that, it's deemed not a suitable grain for distilling because it simply isn't producing enough alcohol to stay competitive in the market. Huh. Craft distillers almost never monitor that number. Right. Right. They're entirely based on flavor. They're okay. entirely based on opportunities to produce something that the big guys, in fact, have decided a long time ago not to pursue. If you look at a malt specification sheet, it has all sorts of factors that you might consider when buying that malt. What its uh, uh, free amino nitrogen is, what its total protein is, what its color and love bond is, all sorts of things, but never a mention of flavor. Huh. Just doesn't mention it at all. Huh. And that's where we're changing. And the Cascadia is really set up as one of maybe one of the top five malt growing regions in the world. Malt wow. being barley. Yeah. Barley for malting uh, growing regions in the world. Wow. So... Uh like you get, is it uh, like kind of where do you get your stuff from? Is it all, all up and down the Cascadia region, or is it like up north? It's it... mostly in the Skagit Valley. The okay. Skagit Valley is um, a, a beautiful uh, 